In golf, there's one major that stands out above the rest, the U.S. Open. Nearly 10,000 players from around the world attempted to qualify, but only 156 made the cut into the field, and they'll find themselves slugging it out over four grueling days at Torrey Pines for the chance to be the last man standing. Where else can you watch the best players in the game put everything on the line for the opportunity to rise above the rest and hoist the most coveted prize in golf? This is America's championship. And to win it, well, it'll take everything they've got, and then some. Tune in for the 121st U.S. Open at Torrey Pines this Thursday, June 17th, until this Sunday, June 20th. From many, one. A coin flip is 50-50, but if you didn't know there were only two sides to the coin, you thought there were three you'd have no idea how to make the correct mathematical bet. But once you know there's only two sides to a coin, it's very simple to make a, 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 a bet. And that's essentially what all, all that golf is. I mean, it really is just a math-based decision problem. Golf, the game we love, the game that tortures us, the game that brings us to seaside cliffs and the scorching desert, the game that monopolizes our time and our energy, the game we watch and read about, described as a math-based decision problem. You might find that description mildly upsetting. If you're a proper golf romantic, perhaps it's downright offensive. But consider the source, for the source is not a proper golf romantic. You won't find him playing around with hickories or reading a book on golden age architecture. He's too busy looking at the data, which he believes he's used to crack this game open. A cheat code, so to speak. But can golf strategy really be solved? One man, at least, believes so. I'm Dan Rappaport, and this is Local Knowledge, the Golf Digest podcast that takes a deep dive into the most compelling stories in golf. This week, we have the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines. It's the second Open at Torrey, with the last coming in 2008, when Tiger Woods won on one leg. In the 13 years since, there's been a massive boom in the world of golf data and statistics. Players are leveraging numbers to make themselves better and smarter. Take last year's US Open. Bryson DeChambeau, who bulked up because the stats told him that distance is a mega advantage, tamed Wingfoot with a masterclass in course management. When DeChambeau won the NCAA championships in 2016, one of the first people he thanked is Scott Fawcett. I use the system Scott Fawcett came up with, he said. He's helped me understand the percentages of going for flags and when not to. That guy you heard at the beginning talking about coin flips, you guessed it, Scott Fawcett. So who is this Scott Fawcett character who says he's reduced this most complicated game into a cold set of percentages? And was it his goal all along to turn this into a problem set of implied probabilities? Well, no, not really. I played professionally from 96 through 02, and then I started my electricity company, and then I really didn't play a whole lot of golf. I mean, I played golf just at my country club and whatever, but I didn't really try to play competitively. I just wasn't finding much fun in the Texas Amateur and stuff like that. Like winning the Texas Amateur would be amazing. Finishing 14th in the Texas Amateur doesn't really turn me on. And so I really struggled with golf there for a couple years, and then had a few crazy things happen in my family um, that made me just like decide I was going to just take some time, basically take a year and just kind of play competitive amateur golf. 
Scott got his game in pretty good shape and decided to enter Q School in 2008 as a 35-year-old amateur. And he actually got to the final stage, which got him conditional Corn Ferry Tour status. Then he tried to juggle pro golf with running his electricity company, and that, in shocking news, did not work. So he finally decided to hang it up for good as a pro. And being the math nerd that he is, he started posting some math-based golf strategy thoughts on the Poker Strategy Forum website, 2plus2.com. Then, there was a major breakthrough in golf statistics. Oh, we've got a new tool for that, and I wrote it down here. It's Strokes Gained. Mark Brody, author of the seminal book Every Shot Counts and kind of the godfather of golf statistics, creates Strokes Gained, a new way of measuring each shot a professional golfer hits. It's easy enough to understand, but it takes a little while to explain, so we're not going to get into the details, but it provided the foundation for Foss to take his golf nerddom to a new level. Like I truly, in 2013, first half of 14, was combining TrackMan, you know, shot pattern data with the, the limited strokes gain statistics we had at that point. And then when it came time for me to actually use it, again, all I wanted to do was win the U.S. Mid-Am and play in the Masters. That was literally the entire point of doing all of this. But Fawcett got injured right before it. It was a freak injury, really. He got a cortisone shot in his elbow, and the doc ended up paralyzing his arm for a few days. His playing pursuits were put on hold, but he kept honing his core strategy work. He then approached a local kid at his club in Dallas who was about to play in the Texas State Amateur and, in typical Scott fashion, did not sugarcoat anything. I just reached out to him and said, dude, I did a lot of math-based strategy work and, you know, you're a great player. I don't really understand why you don't have better results than you do even on the junior golf level. I mean, at the time he was ranked 3,300 in the world in the junior golf standings. So I said, if you'll just do everything I tell you to do at the state am next week, I, you know, I guarantee you'll win. And he won by three, which I was like, wow, I didn't actually believe that, but sure enough, it worked. Scott caddied for this kid again a few weeks later in the U.S. Junior, and the kid won again. His name? Will Zalatoris. You know, Will Zalatoris, after I caddied for him when he won the Texas Amateur, he sent me a text that just said, you've given me 25 years of experience in five days. And I'm like, decade. Like, I'm going to take decades off your learning curve. Decade is a math-based course management system. It's actually an acronym, too. Distance, expectation, correct target, analyze, discipline, execute. We're going to get into some specifics of how Decade wants you to play golf, but before we do, there are a few principles it's based on that you kind of have to know. The first one is that golf is hard. Really, really hard. What's sad for all of the the golfers listening at home, and you can look yourself in the mirror, but we're all a bunch of type A obsessive compulsive people. It's why we're attracted to a, you know, an individual sport where we're the only ones in control. You don't have to depend on teammates. So golf is just so set up for failure by attracting perfectionists. And then it's also a sport that really is essentially impossible to perfect. And, And even if you were a robot and able to hit the exact same shot over and over and over again, it's the largest outdoor sport played with the ball in the air, the longest of any sport in the world. Like, the wind, if there's any wind at all, it will make your shot pattern huge. And so just the game is, is imperfectible. Is that a word? I should ask a writer that out. <laughs> you cannot perfect golf. It's just incredible how, 
again, I don't want to say how hard the game is, but essentially how hard the game is. But once you understand these, it's, it's kind of paradoxical. Once you understand that it's hard, it actually makes it very easy, which is why I would say the main thing that I really try to get my players to focus on is, is expectation management. As we learn more about data, it's becoming less frequent, but you'll still hear announcers on PGA Tour broadcasts talk about how a guy should expect to hit it within 10 feet from 100 yards in the fairway. Well, now we have data to test that hypothesis. From the fairway, from 100 yards, guess what percentage of shots PGA Tour players hit within 10 feet? 70%? 50%? It's 28%. 28. How about this one? From 100 yards in the rough, the PGA Tour average to hole out is 3.1 strokes. So if a guy has 100 yards from the rough into a par 4 after his tee shot, he's actually more likely to make bogey than birdie. From 162 yards in the fairway, which is a 9 or an 8 iron for these guys, the average strokes to hole out is 3.0, so they're equally likely from that position to make birdie and bogey. From 150 yards in the fairway, a guy is more likely to hit it outside of 40 feet than inside 10 feet. And these are PGA Tour players. So when an announcer says something like that 10 feet tidbit, Scott has made a habit of calling it out on Twitter. He says he's trying to stop doing it because he gets in too many Twitter fights, and we'll touch on that a little later. But when we spoke, it was just a few days after the NCAA championships, and Scott had an absolute field day calling out what he sees as announcer BS. The guy yesterday hit a a shot from like 156 to like 22 or 25 feet and he was like ah it's pretty loose shot there i'm like pretty loose like that's a positive strokes gain shot on the pga tour like positive by probably a tenth of a stroke or more like if he could just do that shot on every single shot he would be the best strokes gained approach player in the history of the game and it's just a total lack of understanding of what again back to expectations wait wait, wait. i want to stop you there so if, if a PGA Tour player from 156 yards hit it to 22 feet every single time, they'd be the best. I mean, I don't know if they're well, the best, but they'd be one of the best of all time. From 162 yards in the fairway, they average three strokes to hole out. If they hit it to 20 to 20 feet, that's 1.88 putts to hole out. So they would gain 0.12 shots. 0.12 times 18 is basically two shots. If they could have 18 straight that's, that's shots. That's Tiger level. I mean, that's Tiger at his peak. Yeah, I mean, it's Tiger peak. Just that. He's absolutely right. We only have strokes gain statistics going back to 2004, so we missed Tiger's first peak in the late 90s and early 2000s. But his best ever recorded season for strokes gained approach was in 2006. It's also the best one ever on record. His strokes gained approach per round that season was 2.072 shots. We got a good illustration of just how hard golf is a couple months ago when the European Tour had Rory McIlroy and Justin Thomas play Chase the Ace. They gave each guy 50 shots, each from 146 yards, to make a hole-in-one. So they're hitting the same shot over and over from a perfect lie. It's literally on a tee. This of course never happens in golf. You hardly ever get the same yardage twice in the same round, let alone the same one over and over and over. So how do they do? As you may have guessed, neither had a hole-in-one. They hit plenty of really good shots, like the one Rory thought was going in there a second ago, but they also hit some really poor ones. I wish I could show you the shot chart, but I'm looking at it right now, and it's just shockingly wide. There are nine shots that are more than 10 yards right or left of the target. 
Balls left of the green, right of the green, over the green, short of the green. When you look at shot charts on par threes on the actual PGA Tour, it's even worse. And number 15 at Innisbrook is a par three that plays 195 yards that I use in the app in the seminar. And it's a par three, so all these shots are hit off of a tee, off of a flat piece of ground, where they're trying to hit it probably roughly 195. And the shot pattern is 50 yards deep. It boils down to this. Even the absolute best players in the world don't know where the ball is going. They just don't. And these surprisingly bad statistics also translate into putting. On average, PGA Tour players make just 46% of 8-foot putts. The make rate from 33 feet is 5.8%. The three-putt percentage from 33 feet is 6.5%, so a guy is more likely to three-putt from 33 feet than make it. And whenever I show or talk about these averages to the casual fan, they are stunned. These are the best players in the world. But when you watch golf on TV, you're watching the guys who are playing the best that week. In data terms, that's the upper portion of a chart. You're not seeing the guys who made the cut on the number and finished T62, and you're definitely not seeing the guys who shoot 74 or 75 and pack their bags on Friday evening. And this kind of thinking bleeds into amateurs, too. The problem is, people are too attached to the good. It's human nature, really. You remember the good and view that as the norm, and you try to shun out the bad. You fan a wedge into the bunker, and you say to yourself, that's not like me. I, I never do that. Um, except it was you. I do believe this, and I, I say it, it's, I, I intentionally worded it inflammatory, but I do believe that anytime you finish a round and think you should have shot lower, there's only one of two things that is possible. You're either not as good as you think you are, or you made mental and strategic mistakes. That's it. Because in the scenario, like, well, I, I won't do that next time. Well, then that's an indication you're probably not as good as you think you are, because you probably will still make that physical mistake. Admit it. When you play golf, you plan for your best shot. This, though, is a mathematical fallacy. Because, as we talked about earlier, if PGA Tour players don't know where the ball is going, then you definitely don't. Okay, so all the stuff we discussed so far is pretty hypothetical. So how do we translate these concepts to the golf course? For the full decade experience, obviously, you have to pay for that. It's a great program, I use it myself and it has awesome tools for you to put in your own data and give you personalized stats and tips on what to practice and how to play. This isn't an ad, I promise, but if we're gonna talk about the guy's system, it's kind of our duty to point you in the direction of the actual system. We can talk about the basics though, and one basic that Scott and I discussed is this. You need to stop thinking about your best shots and think of your distribution of shots. Essentially, think of your golf swing as a cannon that's kind of accurate, Exactly how accurate depends on your skill level, but everyone from the worst player on earth to peak Tiger Woods, their swing is an imperfect cannon that fires balls away. Where these shots end up is called a shot pattern. But we're not wired to think about the bad shots when we decide where to aim or what club to hit. We think only of the good ones. You don't think about the seven iron you sculled into the water last week or the one you caught a little fat and went into the bunker three holes ago. You think of the one you pured to kick in range, even if it happened last October. This, by the way, is not just a weekend hacker thing. At the tour level, we all play for this like 80th percentile shot, just, just like amateurs at home do. Now, the 80th percentile shot is a lot closer to the tour player's average than the at-home guy is, so they don't see it as often. But even when I stand up and tell a tour player to hit a shot, hey, what, what's your eight iron? 165 yards, cool. 
Just go hit a bunch of stock eight irons. You're trying to hit 165. They will maybe hit 20, 25% tops longer than 165. Their average will usually be about 162 or three. And then, you know, like I say, the other 75% of shots are all coming up short, which is why they, you know, I, I put it in every packet. I make it for my tour players every week. Y'all suck the front hole locations because they're all trying to land it, you know, three yards on the green to stop it, you know, five yards on the green by the pin. And you just don't hit, you can miss hit shots, but you can't over pure shots. And that talk about distance also applies to direction. When choosing your target line, you likely think about your best shot rather than your shot pattern. But the math says loud and clear that you should be thinking about your shot pattern. I would think by now you have a pretty good understanding of shot patterns. So what do we do with these shot patterns? For the next few minutes, when we talk about numbers and strategy, we're gonna talk about PGA Tour players. It's no offense to you, but it's simply not possible to make generalizations for all amateurs. Whereas with tour players, we have statistics and solid baselines. So let's start with tee shots. If you had to distill decade strategy into one little soundbite, it'd be this. It's surprisingly aggressive off the tee and surprisingly conservative with your approach shots. We say surprisingly aggressive instead of just aggressive because, as Scott will tell you repeatedly, they're not aggressive, they're mathematically correct. They're just aggressive in relation to conventional wisdom or the old school way of playing. You do have to get a little bit of a, of a I don't care where this goes attitude. You just have to, you know, it's, it's, it's a very Yoda-like saying, but to gain con control, one must give up control. You got to have a little bit of an I don't care where this goes I've picked my target. I know my shot pattern's huge. I'm sending it out there. 70 yards between penalty hazards is kind of what I look for, for the most part, for players to be hitting driver 67, 70 yards. What he's saying is, if there are 70 yards between hazards, the best club for a tour player to hit is essentially always driver. He's using hazards kind of liberally. Basically, it means if there are 70 yards between areas that would leave you absolutely dead, you hit driver. So if there's a dense forest of trees down the left, that counts as a hazard because if you hit it there, you can't advance it to the green. And that 70 yard number comes from thousands and thousands of data points which say that some really high percentage of pros tee shots on the golf course finish within 35 yards each way of the intended target. By the way, on the driving range, the dispersion would be a lot tighter than 70 yards. Pros are nutcases too. Also, keep in mind that the 70 yard number is between hazards. So if one side of the hole is OB or water or a forest of trees, but the other side is wide open, it's driver. Rough, and this is crucial, does not count as a hazard. Of course, these are just guidelines, and if there's knee-high rough or something crazy, then you adjust. But just normal rough does not count in the calculation. All the shot link data tells us that closer to the hole is almost always better, even if you're in the rough. This is why Bryson hit driver everywhere it was feasibly possible at Wingfoot, even if it put him in the rough. And Scott didn't come up with this closer is better principle. Mark Brody, the strokes gain guy, wrote extensively about it in his book, Every Shot Counts, which came out in 2014. It has completely transformed strategy on short holes. In 2004, and this data was posted on Twitter by golf statistician Lou Stagner, who co-hosts a podcast with Scott, but in 2004, on PGA Tour par fours measuring under 350 yards, the median tee shot was 255 yards. 
That means a lot of guys were laying back with fairway woods or long irons because that was one of the old axioms of golf. On short par fours, put it in the fairway, give myself a wedge, and get a look at birdie. With that 255-yard median tee shot, the scoring average on those holes that year was 3.83. In 2021, the median tee shot on holes under 350 yards so far is 282 yards. That's 27 yards. It's a massive difference. And the scoring average on those holes so far this year has dropped to 3.76. All this to say, as long as there are 70 yards between hazards, tour pros should be sending it. But how does one know if there are 70 yards between hazards? In the old days, you'd either need a detailed yardage book or you'd have to just walk it off yourself. Now, Google Earth. It's literally that simple. Google Earth has overhead images of every golf course in the world, and they're accurate to within inches. And it has tools to allow you to click and drag between points, and it'll tell you exactly how far there are between those two points. So before every PGA Tour event, Scott will map out each hole on Google Earth. He'll find out if there are 70 yards between hazards, and if there are, he'll find the center line of that 70-yard line, and that's where the player should aim. Most times, that's in the fairway, but sometimes it's in the rough. That's fine. We're trusting the math here. Ten is Riviera's most revered hole. Intended by Thomas to be a drive-and-pitch test of precision, it's been transformed by today's technology into a toyful but treacherous drivable par four. From an elevated tee, the fairway cross. Jack Nicklaus famously called number 10 at Riviera the best short par four in golf because of the options it presents. You can go for the green, but it's almost impossible to actually hit it, and the resulting chip shot is brutally difficult. If you miss left, there are trees. If you miss right of a bunker that guards the green, it's almost impossible to keep your second on the putting surface. So the safe play is to lay back of the bunkers and leave yourself a wedge in, right? Wrong. Wrong. We know this now, but we didn't then. In 2015, just 51% of players in the Genesis Invitational went for the green on number 10. And those guys played it in a combined 14 under par. The 49% who laid up played it in a combined 52 over par. Fast forward to 2020, and over 85% of players went for the green on number 10 in the Genesis Invitational. I totally agree. The chip shot's hard, <laughs> but that doesn't, that whenever people argue to me, the chip shot's hard, I guarantee you the wedge shot's harder. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's number 10 at Riviera is a great example of this. Number three at the masters is a great example of this where that front left hole location this year in the final round of the masters. Yeah. Zalatoris busted it up there 25 yards short of the green he hit a terrible chip shot to the back fringe about 22, 25 feet away. Justin Rose and Hideki both laid up and then they missed the green long. So yeah, it's a hard chip shot, but a bad chip shot is basically always easier than a bad wedge shot. Just as your worst putt is better than your worst chip, your worst chip is better than your worst wedge. And that's assuming you pull off your layup shot to perfection, which as we've been discussing is anything but a sure thing because we don't know where the ball is going. Here's Colin Morikawa. He leads the tour in strokes gained approach and is probably the best iron player in the world. And here he's explaining why on number 10 at Riviera, he opts to hit a driver and then a chip as opposed to two irons. I, I keep looking at the wedge shot and I keep saying, you know, yes, we can hit a 70 yard wedge shot. We can hit a hundred yard wedge shot. But when you look at the green and how narrow and shallow it is, um, it just doesn't make sense in my head. Like, especially how firm the greens are. That first bounce is gonna bounce 
so far. So you're working with two yards, two, three yards. And, and when you're on, you, you know, you're going to hit that shot. But when you're off a little bit or there's wind and it's cold or whatever, um, that can cost you being in the short bunker. That costs you being over. So, you know, you hit driver, you hit it down there. Uh, most likely you'll, you'll hopefully have a chip shot. If you don't have it at the pin, you'll have a chip shot in the middle of the green, two putt. Middle of the green. That's a perfect segue to Decade's approach shot system. Remember what I said earlier about Decade. Tee shot strategy is surprisingly aggressive. Approach shot strategy is surprisingly conservative. It basically comes down to this. You're trying to avoid short-siding yourself as much as possible. Short-siding, if you don't know, means missing on the side of the green that the flag is on. So if the pin is on the right side of the green and you miss your shot to the right of the green, you have less green to work with on your chip, thus short-siding yourself. Scott created a chart that he gives to tour players that tells them the minimum distance away from the edge of the green that they can aim, and it depends on a few things. The first is distance. The further away from the hole, the further away from the edge of the green a player needs to aim. Second, what's around the green. If there's a bunker, that'll move the target further away from the edge of the green. If there's water, that'll move it extra further away. If there's wind, you're more conservative, and if it's ultra windy, you're even more conservative than that. Say a player is in the fairway and he is 165 yards in, for him, it's an eight iron. And just to make things simple, let's say there's no bunker and no water around the green, it's just grass, and it's dead calm, there's no wind. The pin sheet says the flag is tucked, it's six feet or two yards off the right edge of the green. So the player looks down at his decade chart and sees that with 8-iron from the fairway, the closest he should ever aim to the edge of the green is 6 yards away from it. But the flag is only 2 yards away from it, so he's going to aim his 8-iron 4 yards, or 12 feet, left of the flag. It's that simple. You look at the chart, you run some really simple math, and you know where to aim. Now, this isn't to say that decade would never tell you to aim at a flag. If a flag is in the middle of the green, you're essentially always going to aim for it because it gives you the most variance. And if you're close enough to the hole and the conditions call for it, by all means, flag hunt. The underlying principle here is to stop trying to make birdies by chasing pins. You need to get birdies out of your head. They happen, and this is what Scott always says, by accident. And while you're at it, expel pars too. If you're in the trees and you have two options, go for it so give yourself a chance at your precious par, or pitch out and almost ensure bogey, ask yourself, what gives me the best chance to make the best score, including the bad shots I very well might hit? Divorce par, just do it. The, the old adage of par is irrelevant is completely true. Par is totally irrelevant on any given shot. You need to be selecting what's, what is the best target and outcome for me here to, to score my best on this hole. And I've got a number number four at Stanford is a par three that I use in my seminar where this front hole location, it's a really hard one. And that scoring average in the good one, which is one of the best college events of the year is 3.4 to this front hole location every year. And so when I tell people, I'm like, if you make a bogey, you didn't lose a shot. You lost 0.6 shots. That's it. If you make a par, you gained 0.3 shots. You may think of golf through the lens of birdies and pars and bogeys, but they don't give out trophies for making X amount of birdies or X amount of pars. They give out trophies for beating your competitors, and the best way to do this is to think of scoring in relation to your competitors, not a number chosen when the golf course opened however many years ago. 
I, I circle back to the words patience and discipline just all the time because I really do believe those are the two hardest things in golf to to really understand is just plodding along and basically you're waiting for a good string of par fives and then you're just trying to not give it back on the other holes. That's really what golf is all about at the end of the day. The last core decade principle we'll touch on is Scott's plea to his players to play one shot and only one shot with driver. When I talk to casual fans, one of the biggest misconceptions they have about pros is that they're always carving their shots on every hole. If it's dog leg right, they'll be cutting it. A dog leg left, it's a draw all day. When I said this, Scott physically cringed. The double cross is what makes shot patterns become, you know, exponentially larger. Because now, you know, again, I fade 100% of my shots. But now if I'm going to try to hit a draw, I'm going to double cross it literally 20 to 30, 35% of the time. Um, like that's just reality. And anyone can go test that for themselves at home. That's really just the way it works. So now I'm a fader, but I'm trying to draw it. And there's a decent chance, a 25-ish percent chance that I'm going to start it right and then hit a block cut. Like those are just always off the planet because you're working against yourself. But outside of like a nine iron, you really need to ask yourself the question, why am I trying to work this? Is it because I'm trying to get a look at birdie? And if that's your answer, that's probably a bad idea. At the Masters earlier this year, I asked Will Zalatoris this very question. Do you ever hit draw with driver off the uh, Very rarely. I mean, basically never. And this is why I find it totally hilarious when I play with eight handicaps and they'll hit this awful shot and they're like, I tried to fade that one. If the best players in the world aren't doing it, then why are you? Perhaps you're thinking this all sounds like pretty straightforward information. Pros have been playing to the fat side of the green for decades, and you're not wrong. Scott frequently cites Tiger Woods as someone who followed decade principles almost perfectly without even knowing it. So in a sense, what Scott did is he quantified what the best course managers have felt in their gut. Listen here to Stuart Sink from after his second victory of this season, talking about his experience with Decade on PGA Tour Radio. And keep in mind that Stuart Sink has been a pro golfer for 26 years. Over the years of my career, I've had, um, you know, my gut feeling has kind of been to play a certain way strategically. You know, I feel like to be aggressive, uh, I kind of know when it is and when it's time and, and to be conservative, I know when it's time. And I've, I've always kind of played like a, I've managed that part of my game well. It's been a strength of mine, but I never really had anything to quantify it. And so what it's led to has been a little bit of conflict over the years with my caddies. And most of my caddies um, have always wanted me to be a little bit more aggressive. And I was always a little hesitant because I just felt like something tells me that this just is right. But my gut says to do this is right. And, and basically what Scott has done is Using strokes gained and all the good stats we have available now, he's sort of quantified the way my gut has always thought. One of the main things I get from people is like, it's common sense. And it is common sense once you see it. But if it was common sense, everybody would do it. Scott will tell you that nobody does exactly what he says. Guys still take unnecessary risks or choose bad targets. But more and more guys on tour are following his principles or using similar stats programs based on the same underlying numbers. He estimates that he'll send packets to between 25 and 30 players in this week's U.S. Open, but plenty more have at least familiarized themselves with the concepts. A growing number of college coaches are having their teams take his seminar, 
Colin Morikawa, for example, sat through it during his time at Cal. By the way, you better believe Decade and similar systems are a big reason why young guys are winning at a higher clip than ever before. They're all smart now. They don't need years on tour to learn how to play. And so when he won the PGA Championship last summer, Scott tweeted out something about Colin and Decade. He does this frequently, and it pisses off a lot of people who think he's trying to take credit for guys' wins. Scott's response? People that don't like me on Twitter typically don't like me just because I talk about player success all the time. I'm like, it's marketing. It's, I mean, like I'm trying to sell the product here. As I consumed all the decade content over the last few months, I do feel like I've improved as a golfer, but there are some downsides too. Because unlike Scott, I do consider myself something of a golf romantic. And math and romanticism, they just don't really jive. Hitting the same shot over and over at a mathematically optimized target is not the game I fell in love with as a kid. When I go and play a great course I haven't played before and my host says something like, hit a draw around the corner here after watching me hit cuts all day, or if he says, lay back to give yourself a wedge, I have to bite my tongue. It's like, thanks for the invite, dude, but you don't know what you're talking about. I also love reading about golf course architecture. Why is that bunker there? Is it there to screw with my eyes? I get a major kick out of noticing little tricks these architects play. Blind shots, areas that look narrower than they are, that sort of thing. But with Google Earth and Decade, well, nothing is really a mystery anymore. You know how far it is to carry something, and you know what club to hit, and you know where to aim. Listen to this exchange I had with Scott. And then there's this tension, right? There's this tension between trying to play golf to shoot the lowest possible score and trying to play golf the way that the architect wants you to. And that's, that's something that you have exacerbated. Yeah. I mean, the architecture's intention is just totally irrelevant from how I view it. Like I just, I couldn't care less about what they think. They I, I love do. that. That's, that's, that's I mean, honest. That is brutal honesty. It's just totally irrelevant. I mean, okay. That's, that's a neat idea, but here's, I mean, again, I really do mean this like with math and satellites, they're, I do feel bad that they've got to figure out something to design, but there's just nothing tricky anymore in my right, opinion. Cause it's like, like if it, there's a blind tee shot, you can go on Google earth the night before and it's all of a sudden it's not blind. There's nothing else to guess about. There's a rock on number eight at Pebble beach that you're supposed to aim at. That is not the center of the fairway. The center of the fairway is five yards right of that rock. So I reached out to Andy Johnson, editor-in-chief of The Fried Egg, who has emerged as an authoritative voice on golf course architecture. He and Scott, and this may shock you, don't usually see eye to eye. And Andy rejects the notion that Decade and Google Earth have cracked the code of golf course architecture. As the conditions get firmer at golf courses, and the more prevalent of, of contour is around greens, on greens, in fairways, the less effective just simply examining a golf course by Google Earth is. I mean, in a golf course is three-dimensional and Google Earth by its nature is, is two-dimensional. So, you know, to say that just simply Google Earth can tell you the entire story um, is seems a, a bit, you know, if I, if I showed you something in 2D and then showed you something in 3D, the 3D would look a lot different and... Uh, perhaps more interesting and present a different problem. Andy made another really interesting point, that the objective of good architecture is to make following programs like Decade harder. A lot of what architecture does and great architecture does is it it tries to get you to take the bait, you know? What Scott's saying is don't take the bait, but 
you know, really great players know in the back of their head not to take the bait. That's they still take the bait every once in a while, you know. And I think that's the really great architects. A lot of times fool you into not taking the bait, and then sometimes you're in a position that's really not a great spot. You know, I think we saw this at Shinnecock a ton. Like Shinnecock turned golfers on their heads, and it was because where where they bailed out was oftentimes it looks safe, but sometimes it's a worse place than what they bailed out from. If everyone followed Decade, everyone would probably become a better golfer. But golf would also become less interesting. And those two things can be true at once, and I think they are. There is a tiny bit of me that feels bad about that, but the competitive side of me tells that side to shut up and enjoy it. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. The music for today's episode is called Two in the Back, and it's by Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoyed listening today, please do subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to download the episodes and leave us a review. It's all a very big help. Thanks a lot, guys.